Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for leading us in worship, guys. Um, those who don't know me, my name is Dustin Stanley. I'm a pastoral intern here at Rock Hill. Um, I counted a great privilege to address you with the Word of God this morning. Uh, we've been walking through the book of John, like Jim told us, and this morning we come to John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. I invite you to turn there, though we won't read it right away. This is going to be the second sign that John presents, namely the healing of the royal official's son. But before I read the passage, I want to ask you a question that's been resonating with me this week. What hope is there for desperate people? What hope is there for desperate people like you and like me, like our family, our friends, our neighbors, and coworkers? I don't want to make too many assumptions. Maybe I'm the only one who knows what it feels like to be desperate. Or maybe not. Maybe you too have tried something that you wouldn't normally do out of your desperation. Maybe you have attempted something with little chance of success because you had no other option. What hope is there for desperate people? We don't have to do more than glance at the news to see that there are desperate people all around us. Whether it's people lashing out through the courts, political activism, full-scale war, or the all-too-often mass shootings, we see desperate people searching for something, looking for something, anything to satisfy them, looking for something, anything to get at this thing called life. What hope is there for desperate people? But before you say that's out there, that's not me I'm going to borrow from the the writer Henry David Thoreau his quote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And if he's right, we need to answer the question, what hope is there for desperate people? Today we're going to look at a story with a desperate man trying to do something, anything to save his boy. Today, through this story, we'll see the main idea as true faith in the living word leads to life. What hope is there for desperate people? True faith in the living word leads to life. Life that's available for all, life that's available for desperate people. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 4, verses 43 and following. After the two days... He left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. 
And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Lord, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son lives. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So our text picks up at the end of the Samaritan woman and Samaritan village narrative that both Jim and Brian have taught over the last couple weeks. After two days, he spent with the people in Sakar in that Samaritan village or city. After two days where people had recognized him as the savior of the world, finally he goes to Galilee. It's been his task to go to Galilee since the beginning of chapter 4. It says, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. He was going to Galilee for a very interesting purpose. He was becoming too well known. He was becoming too well known. You may recall that disciple of John who was, who was arguing with the disciple of, of Jesus. And so the disciple of John goes to John the Baptist and he says, everybody's going to him. Something's wrong. Everybody's going to him. Jesus, his ministry was becoming too well known. So he switches regions. Whether to get more time in solitude or time with the twelve, we don't know. But the text tells us he moves regions due to his popularity soaring. How different is that than our understanding? And that brings us to this proverb of Jesus in verse 44. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. A prophet has no honor in his own country. Now why would John say this? It's kind of confusing. If you look in the next verse, the people of Galilee welcome Jesus. It seems like they do give him honor. Why would he say this? Is Jesus going to a place intentionally where he would receive no honor? Or is this verse there so that it would contrast the welcome that Jesus receives from the Galileans to the welcome that the Samaritans gave him? The Samaritans celebrated Jesus based on who he was. They recognized him as the one who would give living water who would give eternal life. They recognized him as the Messiah revealed. They recognized him and said for themselves, this man we now believe is the savior of the world. But why do the Galileans welcome him? Go ahead, look in your Bible. 
Why do they welcome him? Because they had seen the signs. They were welcoming him not for who he was, but for what he did. Not for the person of Jesus, but for the power of Jesus. They had misguided faith in the signs rather than true faith in the living word that leads to life. Signs are important for that which they reveal. Signs are important for their significance. They were pointing to the living word that would give life. They're meant to move beyond themselves and point to something else. The sign on the highway is not there just for its own sake, but to tell you what town is coming ahead. The signs of Jesus were meant to point to Jesus as the living water, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Jesus was not looking for misguided faith, faith that necessitated sight, but for true faith in the living word that leads to life. As we read on, we learn that Jesus, he returns to Cana of Galilee, just north of his hometown in Nazareth, where he grew up. It was here in the hill country of Cana where he did his first sign of turning water into wine. He demonstrated his power over the natural world. He demonstrated his power over the elements. And it was here that Jesus would encounter the royal official, a certain royal official. This man likely was in the court of Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. And although he was a subordinate ruler, he was often considered a king. This man would travel 20 miles from the east of Capernaum, 700 feet below sea level to Cana, 700 feet above sea level, taking a 20-mile hike of elevation. And I can only imagine what that hike must have been like. This man had heard that Jesus was close. Jesus was in his region. Someone had convinced him that it was worth leaving the deathbed of his dying son to go and find Jesus. I can only imagine what that hike must have been like. I gotta get help from my boy. Is he okay? Should I turn back and just spend his last few moments with him? Should I keep going and find this Jesus? Who is he anyway? Can he really help my son? Can he really heal my boy? Man, I'm getting tired. Should I stop? Should I rest? No. My son's life is on the line. I can only imagine what that hike must have been like. Leaving his ailing son to go and find this man whom maybe he had never met, never seen. We don't know what this man knew of Jesus. Perhaps he was knowledgeable of the miracle at Cana. Perhaps he knew that Jesus had power over the elements and therefore thought Jesus could heal his son. Maybe he was part of the crowds that went to Jerusalem and saw Jesus' demonstration of authority in clearing the temple. If, if, if Jesus had that kind of authority, maybe he could heal my son. Whatever it was that he knew, 
He was convinced that it was worth leaving his deathbed son to go and find this Jesus. Other than a work of God, which was certainly there, what human elements would cause a man to go? Well, it was an encounter with Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Either through the testimony of another, the eyewitnessing of his works, or perhaps both. And second, desperation. If he was a royal official, he probably had money. He probably had tried many treatments. We have no idea. But the man was desperate, desperate enough to leave his death, the son, his son who was on his deathbed to go and find this Jesus. Personal testimony and desperation. So tired from the journey, desperate from the urgency of the manner, he begins to ask Jesus to come and heal his son. Lord, please come and heal my son. He begs him, he pleads with him, and to his pleading and begging, he hears the words, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of harsh on first glance. That sounds kind of harsh on second glance. It'd be hard not to respond, um, Jesus, did you hear me? I said my son is dying. I walked 20 miles to come and find you. I don't know you, but please come. Please come. Did you not hear me? Why are you talking about signs and faith? My son is dying. His life is at stake. There's nothing I will not do. Why are you talking about this right now? It would be so hard not to respond in such a way. So why would Jesus say this? Two things stand out. Two things stand out. First, Jesus is addressing not only the man, but the crowds. He says, Jesus told him. Jesus was talking specifically to this man, but his words communicated to those around him, unless you people, all the Galileans, you people who welcomed me on the basis of my signs and wonders, not on the basis of me being the God of signs and wonders. And second, Jesus is looking past the concern momentarily of this earthly father to the concern of his father. His father cared for these people. His father loved these people. And Jesus could only do the works which he saw his father doing. So in love, Jesus seeks to correct their misguided faith for true faith in the living word that leads to life. Jesus wanted them to experience something greater It was a hard word to receive, but it was a word given in love. It'd be easy to see this statement only as rebuke, but perhaps Jesus was also offering it as a statement of fact for some. Do you remember that disciple Thomas? Sometimes referred to as doubting Thomas. After the Resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples are in the upper room, and all of them but Thomas have seen Jesus. And he says these words that sound a whole lot familiar to the words of our passage. He says, unless I see 
the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Unless you people see, you will not believe. Unless I see, I will not believe. But to Thomas, Jesus responds with much grace. Think about this watershed moment. Jesus comes into this locked room and says, peace be still. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. Go ahead. Put your finger here. See my hands. Go ahead. Give me your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And love, Jesus offered that grace which Thomas needed. And love, he offers to these people a rebuke. The grace of our Savior is such that on occasion he will grant the sign. But we must remember signs point to that which is significant. Signs point us to true faith in the living word that leads to life. It points us to the one in whom is life. It points us to the one in whom our faith should rest. It points us to Jesus. The royal official, still desperate and urgent for time, doesn't say any of those things that he probably felt like saying because time was of the essence. He said, Lord, come down before my child dies. In desperation, he prays, Lord, come. Lord, come. He admits his need. He requests humbly rather than demanding proudly. He submits himself to authority like he knew to do. He was a royal official under the king, a man under authority, but not under Herod this time, now under the king of kings. Now under the true king and the true Lord, he submits himself and requests from the only one who could do anything about it, Lord, come. But he will receive no sign. No visual confirmation. Jesus would not go with him. Jesus just spoke. Go, your son lives. Your son lives. But what would the man do? Now he's not the Roman official in the passage. Now he's a man. What would the man's reaction be? What is your reaction when Jesus says go? What is your reaction when he speaks a word into your life? What is your reaction to the word of God? What is your reaction to the living word? This man's reaction was to go. That would not have been an easy choice. In that culture, it was believed the miracle could not happen apart from the miracle worker. We see this in John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha, they both echo these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd been here, you could have done something about it, but you weren't. 
In those days, it was believed the miracle could only happen in the presence of the miracle worker. What would this man do? He believed Jesus at his word, and he departed. In faith, he trusted that the living word had spoken to him true words, words that his son was, in fact, living, words that his son would make it through. So he begins to turn back to Capernaum, this time on the downhill. This time the trip would be easier. He's met by his servants. He's he's met by his slaves. They say, your son lives. The exact words that Jesus had spoken, now confirmed by his servants. Your son lives, and the father is relieved. Yes, yes, but what time? Tell me what time he got better. Tell me what time. Seventh hour. It was 1 p.m., and he knew That was the moment which Jesus spoke. He went home and he led his whole household to faith in Jesus. And now we see the second healing, not the healing of the boy, but the healing of the whole household. The boy had received physical life as a sign that Jesus could truly grant eternal life. And now the whole family receives eternal life. Life through true faith in the living word. And we see this important point that no distance is too far for Jesus to give life. In the Samaritan narrative that came right before, we see Jesus cross the distance of gender. That's not too far. He crossed the distance of status. That's not too far. He crossed the distance of race. That's not too far. But here we see geography is not too far for Jesus to cross. 20 miles away, he spoke the word and it happened. We see cultural beliefs are not too far for Jesus to cross. Even as he now sits enthroned at the right hand of God, no distance is too far for him to minister to you and to me. No distance is too far for him to grant life. How often have I said, that man's too far from Jesus. He'll never come. He'll never express faith, and Jesus says, no distance is too far. No barrier can thwart the love of God. Just like in the beginning, when God speaks, things happen. He said, let there be light, and there was. Jesus said, go, your sons live, and he was healed. He's praying at the right hand of the Father. When he asks, it happens. No distance is too far. And I debated whether I would say this or not. This is an aside, but an important one and a quick one. Fathers, we see the importance of your spiritual authority in the family. You have a God-given influence over your family, your children, your wives. Steward it for his glory and their benefit. This man went home and his whole family believed. You have a God-given influence to steward it for his glory and their benefit. The beginning, I asked a question, what hope is there for desperate people? And it's to that question that we now return. 
Do you want to know what hope there is for desperate people? You want to know what the good news is? The good news is that Jesus came into this world to give life. The good news is that true faith and living word that is in Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the, the word who went to the cross on our behalf for our sins, took the penalty upon himself on the cross, the word who resurrected out of the grave, the word who ascended to the right hand of Father, true faith in him, not only in his power but in him, leads to life. Life for desperate people. Life for the mom with the crying baby. She's desperately trying to comfort and wants to stop his wail. Life for the college student who's trying to figure out what on earth they're going to do. Life for the business owner. Desperately trying to keep up with the demands of the economy. His customers, his employees. Life for those of you struggling to keep up with the high rise of inflation and gas prices. Life for the teacher in the room or watching online that's in summer mode questioning whether their children, their, their students are okay. Especially those who only ate on the weekend if they got a bag of food given. You see, Jesus' life is not just one day, someday life. His life is on Thursday afternoons and Saturday mornings. His life is a life in the here and now. His life is a life for the kingdom of God come now and for eternity. There's hope. There's life for desperate people. He offers life to the dying. The only problem is most of our neighbors aren't dying from fevers. They're dying from quiet desperation. So I ask you, what hope is there for desperate people? The hope is that there is life. But what would make our neighbors open to such an experience? perhaps a powerful combination of personal testimony, the word of God, and God's grace through desperation. We saw it in the Samaritan woman narrative. She went and told her testimony, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. They came to Jesus. It was enough to make them come to Jesus, but then it was through his words, through the word of God, that sealed the deal, and now they profess we now believe for ourselves he's the savior of the world. We saw it in the royal official story. Someone came and told him that Jesus was near, and that was enough to make him leave the, the deathbed of his dying son. And then he would go to Jesus and leave, taking Jesus at his word. A powerful combination of personal testimony and the word of God. But I don't just want to see it in the biblical narratives. I want to see it in your life and mine. I want to see it in the lives of our neighbors. Do our neighbors know our testimony? Do they know the word of God? Do they know that when desperation strikes, that there is an author and source of life that they can turn to? 
Maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Do you know, not just does your neighbor, do you in this room and listening online, do you know that true faith in the living word leads to life? If you do not, let it be today that you believe, that you follow Jesus through faith and repentance, through trusting in him and turning away from your sin. Let it be today that you enter the kingdom of God that starts today and goes forever. Life in his kingdom that starts today and goes forever. If you do know this true faith in the living word that leads to life, then I challenge you. Let it impact your Thursday afternoon and your Saturday morning. Let it impact every area of your life as you trust in the word in whom is life. I challenge you to share this news. May his life be the source of your joy and peace this week. May his life cause you to carry this good news to those around you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you grant life that you grant assurance about what we do not see, that you give us hope. We thank you that there is life for desperate people, life for people like us in the daily rhythms of our life. God, I pray that we would learn to experience it, and I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know it, that you would cross every distance to show them your love, that you would cross every distance to convince them that you do offer life. Be with us this week, Lord. Amen.